Welcome or welcome back to episode five of the Primrose Chronicles. I'm your host, narrator, and chronicler, Marty Young. Chronicler, is that a word? Somebody look it up. Anyway, I'm glad you're listening in, and before I forget, I want to say thank you for your faithful following of this relatively new podcast. We're approaching 400 downloads across several platforms, most coming from Buzzsprout, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The Primrose Chronicles Facebook page is getting new followers daily, and the pictures and articles there are getting multiple likes. While the group within that page, the fans of Primrose Chronicles, are about to get their first exposure to premium content this next week, so you might want to join before then. Finally, thanks to a good friend, Dave O'Reardon, the Primrose Chronicles website is being completed, and it will serve as a hub for all things Primrose. None of this would be happening or continuing without your listenership and kind responses to the stories being posted. Thank you. All that leads to our next step back into the narrative that I began last week, which was episode four, a backdrop to an eventful day at church. In it, I gave a rather extensive walkthrough and description of the various programs and activities that can prize church life at East 49th Street Christian Church for me as a young boy coming of age and faith. Following that overview, today I want to zero in on a singular member of the 49th Street staff with whom myself and the others in our youth group considered our minister, the Associate Minister of Youth and Children, or simply the Youth Minister. The youth ministers that East 49th Street hired sequentially to ride herd on us were usually graduates of Christian Theological Seminary, CTS, on the campus of Butler University just west of our neighborhood. With the understanding that their term would be only two or three years, However long it took for them to get their Master of Divinity degree from CTS, they joined the staff of 49th Street. Each of them that I recall were newly married. Roger and Jan Sizemore were first, and Dave and Wanda McCord followed them. Most significant was the fact each couple was a major influence in many of our teen lives. Their duties as youth minister afforded them an office in the church building and a study location for their coursework. That office was off the north side of the sanctuary and on the main floor, just inside a door across the front patio from the main double doors of exit. It was only an office in part. It was really more like a walk-in closet. This office was accessible from the stairwell that also led into the basement in Fellowship Hall. From that office, you went up a couple of stairs and through a door to the platform on the sanctuary with a choir loft, organ, piano, and not one but two pulpits. And at the rear of the office were steps leading into the baptistry. It was here he could study for his classes and prepare for his various responsibilities around the church. The youth minister's office was also a place for male baptism candidates to robe and disrobe surrounding their scheduled immersion and a small closet held those robes in between their use. During the week, it was a hangout for the Twix 12 and 20 set. That phrase, an allusion to a book written by Pat Boone in the late 50s, to help adults help the next rising generation navigate the treacherous waters of those years. (laughs) Again, the things the mind holds on to. Two aspects of the stairwell made it perfect access to the youth minister's office as far as we teens were concerned. A door from the outside led directly to the stairwell that led, in turn, up to the youth minister's office. And going down, it took you to the Coca-Cola vending machine with nickel Cokes just off the fellowship hall. This meant we could park our bikes by the side door or later our cars in the lot across the street, enter the stairwell, go downstairs, 
grab a Coke when it wasn't jammed from slugs that we unsuccessfully had tried to use previously, before heading up to the youth minister's office to disturb his graduate studies with our witty repartee. Since he was our minister, never occurred to any of us that he didn't spend his entire day waiting for us to arrive at his doorstep. With the title of youth minister came many tasks and responsibility, most of which I didn't realize until I entered the same calling of service. Basically, the job entailed everything related to youth and children and everything no one else on staff wanted to do. It went without saying that the youth minister's wife should be included in most all activities and events. In no particular order or spiritual ranking, they included Sunday morning activities in the morning worship service, such as announcements, pastoral prayer, and scripture reading, then possibly leaving the pulpit and sitting in the congregation among the teens to keep their antics to a dull roar during the sermon. Sunday evening responsibilities were similar with an occasional preaching opportunity in the PM worship service and bookended by Sunday night youth group, Cairo Junior High before and CYF High School after, and of course scheduling and hosting teen fellowship gatherings called Afterglows. Then there was Wednesday night teen meeting, all a part of the full family experience called Night of Light. In that sphere, the youth minister's responsibilities might also include the recruiting, staffing, and training of Whirlybirds and Jet Cadet sponsors, though the actual oversight of those elementary programs seemed to fall more to his wife. For all other activities that might affect 49er youth, he was also expected to secure a special bus driver's license, because, as I mentioned earlier, East 49th Street had a church bus. Occasionally, a church member had such a license, but that was only for emergencies and for the periods of time between youth ministers' employ. Monthly youth events off campus included driving a bus of only slightly subdued teens to roller skating events, citywide interchurch inspirations, annual church camps, as well as the occasional service projects at the Circle City's downtown mission. Seeming to be the only person available on weekdays who had said license, he was also expected to chauffeur senior citizens, the Young at Heart group, on outings around the immediate Indianapolis metropolitan area. This was, of course, as his graduate classes allowed. I'm sure it was only a coincidence that over time serving the church, the youth minister's class schedule at seminary more and more conflicted with those scheduled outings. There may have been a good reason for it, though. It was usually during those senior trips that he was also the sounding board for the various complaints regarding his youth group the way they left the kitchen, the bathrooms, the fellowship hall, or the bus. And if it wasn't their cleanliness, it was the way they were so noisy in last Sunday's worship, or their total lack of respect for the building as they ran up and down the stairs, or... or You get the picture? Last but not least were the annual opportunities when, as vacation, he got to spend entire weeks of summer with high school, junior high, and elementary campers at church camp. 24-7 dealing with everything from junior and senior high teen love drama to homesick elementary kids. Now that's a perk. Then it was back to fall kickoff and a whole new year-long calendar. What a life. It was a given for the 40 or so northeast side teens who attended East 49th Street Christian Church, most of them with their families, but some as friends of those families, 
to arrive an hour or so before Sunday worship services for high school Sunday school. Most of us entered the southwest side doors off of Kingsley Avenue. This was generally a family entrance since the nursery and preschool rooms were directly up the stairs on the main floor and the primary and elementary departments were one more flight up on the second floor. You entered the doors and went downstairs to get to our area. We hung out on those stairs and in the basement hallway outside our classroom, waiting for friends and greeting classmates until called into the room by the youth minister, it was time to begin class. And it was a Sunday, like any other Sunday, until it wasn't. The room was only large enough to hold about four rows of 12 or so folding chairs, a small spinet upright piano, and a lectern for teaching. On this occasion, it was packed with teens. Though many of us guys were going steady with girls from the youth group who were also present, Sunday school was a time to sit with buddies while the girls sat on another row. Dave McCord was our youth minister. Most of us liked him a lot. But for Sean Weber, he was an authority figure to be disrespected. Just as there was in school, there was in church youth group a social order in ranking that existed therein. Teens who would not acknowledge one another in the hallowed halls of high school, though, were accepted and even socialized outside their perceived castes during church youth events. It was more fluid, less defined, because of a shared identity as 49ers. But a pecking order of sorts existed just the same. The only thing I know for the sake of this story was that my buddies and I, specifically on this occasion Stan Ward, Brian Wright, and myself, were some of the good kids. Now this shows you how compartmentalized our lives were. Wild, crazy, and ashamedly a little crude during the school week, we cleaned up nice in apparel, language, and behavior for all things youth group related and especially Sunday activities. Sean Weber was also a part of the Sunday morning high school gathering, but he demonstrated no such compartmentalization. Sean was the same on Sunday as he was during the week. It might be good to note that he was the cousin of Randy and Stu Jackson from an episode or two back. They have their own story in these chronicles, but for now, the listener need only know the Jackson brothers were trouble and Sean appeared to be well on his way toward the same. A fair question might be, how had a rebel like Sean found his way to the corner basement classroom for Sunday school? And to ask that is logical. The answer is simple for that time and place. Sean was there because his folks made him. Sean's family were all active 49ers. His mom taught in primary department. His dad was a deacon. And this meant Sean had to be there. That he would rather be anyplace else was most on display during the Sunday school hour. He usually was on the back row, in the corner, by himself, but still close enough to offer a running monologue of backtalk, wisecracks, and generally disruptive comments. Undeterred by correction or reaction from Dave or any other youth sponsor, regardless of how close or present. However, on this morning, for a reason that would soon become evident, Sean sat on the front row. Still near one of the two doors that led to the hall, but on the front row. Class began with a brief opening exercise of singing camp songs requested from the good kids, enthusiastically sung by the girls, reluctantly sung by the boys, and not sung at all by Sean. He was at least quiet during this, but his sullen rebellion remained obvious. 
Following that formal beginning, youth minister Dave went to the podium and began to teach. He was always creative and practical when he brought the word, certainly a step up from the flannel graph stories of Edna Mae Morton's department, regardless of how sincere she was. He usually made applications we all could relate to, everyone that is except Sean. He often mocked Dave's illustration, showed his disdain for things spiritual. His being up front this morning meant Dave was going to have to address Sean's disruptions or lose the entire class for the entire hour. At this point, I need to place the particulars in the room. Stan Ward, Brian Wright, and I were in the second row, a few seats down and behind Sean Weber. On our same row, right behind Sean was a fringe kid. That was our designation. A fringe kid of the youth group Mark Boyce. The CYF good girls, Rose Slayton, sisters Linda and Kathy Lee, Darlene Anderton, etc. They all sat in the front row, a respectable distance from Sean, but still in close proximity to Dave, upon whom most of them had a respectable crush while still dearly loving his wife, Wanda. Regardless of where anyone else was during the class, they would be in the front seats, making sure that Dave knew they were there, attentive and responsive, even if no one else was. On this Sunday, Sean started early with his snide comments, and for a change, Dave was having nothing of it. The following is more or less the conversation that took place this particular morning. Sean, this is stupid and boring. Dave. Sean, keep your opinions to yourself. Sean. But it is. Dave. Sean, I'm not going to let you ruin this class for everyone else who are here to learn. I need you to be quiet. Sean. It's a free country and I can talk if I want. Dave. Sean, I talked to your dad about your behavior down here and he agreed that if you were a disruption, I could ask you to leave and you could go sit in the car. Sean. But you can't make me leave. At that point, Accepting the challenge to his authority, Dave took a couple of steps toward Sean. It was apparent this confrontation could possibly become physical, and the entire class became agitated and anxious. Several of us began urging Sean just to leave, hoping he would yield to some level of peer pressure. But in Sean's mind, he had no peers in this room, and so he rejected those suggestions. Dave reached for Sean's arm to guide him in the direction of the door. Sean stood defiantly, anger in his eyes, shaking off Dave's grasp. Don't touch me. Dave reached for him again while saying very evenly, Come on, Sean, time for you to go. Sean, pulling away again more forcefully, get your hands off me. Dave met force with force, even turning him to the door, saying in a stern but level tone, Let's go, Sean. It was at that point that the situation became surreal for all of us who'd been watching it unfold. Sean reached into his pocket, pulled out a small caliber handgun, pointed it at Dave. I said, get your hands off of me. Dave, in an effort to de-escalate the mounting tensions, come on, Sean, give me your toy and let's go. It's not a toy. At which point, Stan Ward agreed out loud, it's not a toy. I must pause in the sharing of this narrative to set the scene around these two potential combatants before continuing. First, in my telling of this tale, I will from this point refer to each one only by their last names. Ward, Wright, myself, we were the good guys, and Weber, the troublemaker. 
Apparently, Weber had shown his weapon to Ward in the hall before class and had sworn him to secrecy. At the time, it was a pre-class show of rebel bravado, probably to impress Ward, who was himself a closet rebel. Now, it just had become the basis for a possible full-blown incident. Wright, Ward, and I sat close enough to see the entire event unfold, and now, with most of the class, could see clearly the pistol Weber held on Dave. With somewhat faked courage, we began to whisper among ourselves, We can take him down if we move quickly. In truth, we were hoping someone else, anyone else, would come to Dave's aid, or that Dave would prevail in his, thus far, war of words. More contrived were the plans of one Marcus K. Boyce, who sat immediately behind Weber, and possessed, in his mind at least, the only device capable of defending his youth minister from apparent impending harm. You see, Mark was always given to dreams and schemes of repurposing everyday items into military-grade paraphernalia and then bringing it to Sunday School or CYF to show. On this day, his gadget was a standard run-of-the-mill mechanical pencil. For those unfamiliar with such an old-school term, a mechanical pencil consisted of a metal casing that held a thin column of graphite referred to as lead. That leg could be extended from the barrel by twisting a portion of the casing clockwise to an appropriate length for use in note-taking and math problems. Different thicknesses of lead fit different mechanical pencil barrels. They were practical because as long as the top of the pencil contained extra lead shafts, those were hidden underneath an eraser itself inside the metal casing, you never had to sharpen your pencil. You just gave it a twist, went on with your work. Practical, but not cool. Thoughtful and completely clueless grandparents would give sets of matching mechanical pencils and cartridge ink pens as birthday gifts, often along with plastic pocket protectors, to thoroughly disappointed teenage grandsons who in turn thanked them profusely, but then put them in the bottom drawers of usually unused study desks. Marcus K. Boyce was the exception, and he really reveled in all things mechanical, cartridge, and pocket protective. Back to Mark's contrivance du jour on this Sunday. Before arriving on scene, apparently during one of his many MacGyver-like moments, Mark had removed the lead column from one of his many mechanical pencils and discovered that one of his mother's sewing needles easily fit in the same chamber, extending from the tip of the barrel or recessing back into it with a simple twist. This apparent digression in Mark's proclivity toward demented behavior is important to share, because at this point of the story, involving Dave, our youth minister, and Weber, the gun-wielding Sunday school member, Mark had his own thoughts regarding how the events were unfolding and how he was going to defuse them. He was preparing, in his mind, to become the unlikely hero of the moment. He reached for his mechanical pencil turned stiletto, taking it from the plastic pocket protector in his shirt, making certain not to inadvertently grab the matching cartridge pin, and he waited for the right time to embed the needle in the base of Weber's skull. Trained in that proficiency, as with any of us who had taken biology, Mark had dissected a live frog and had pithed the medulla oblongata of a lab table amphibian victim so as supposedly 
to render it impervious to the pain as we all performed different types of junior surgery on it. Funny how you remember phrases from classroom experiences that have no use in future adult conversation. Pithing the medulla oblongata is such a phrase. At any rate, Boyce was preparing to enact the very same procedure on the armed and dangerous Weber. Now, having sufficiently set the supportive cast, we can now return to the two combatants, Dave and Weber. And what took place next happened so fast, but remains burned in the memories of those present. The scenario continued with Dave reiterating, Stop playing around. Give me the gun. And as he reached for the gun, suddenly a shot rang out. Dave grabbed his stomach, fell to the floor, and Sean ran out the door into the hall and up the stairs as the class gasped as one. Led by Rosie, the girls began running, sobbing toward the hallway door and out to the bathroom. Mark was left holding his potential weapon of defense, not having found a clear time to initiate his personal plan of rescue. All of us were shaking as our adrenaline levels dropped and we looked on in disbelief. Dave lay motionless beside the lectern. After a seeming eternity, but actually only a few seconds, Dave arose from the floor, straightening his coat and tie, and returned to the lectern. What was happening? Was it a Lazarian miracle? I'm not sure Lazarian is a word, but if it were, it would mean of or pertaining to Jesus raising Lazarus in John chapter 11. In other words, had our beloved youth minister been raised from the dead, had he in the moment become a candidate for sainthood, were we potential witnesses to attest to his canonization? Okay, our theology and doctrinal positions were still a little sketchy. At any rate, as he arose, we asked ourselves, were we witnessing a miracle? Nope. It was a stupid object lesson. Dave returned to the lectern, beginning a much less riveting Bible study than the illustration with which he had introduced it. As I remember, the lesson focused on how you never know when your life might be over and how important it is to redeem the time. I do recall shortly into the formal lesson, Weber returned, quietly and dutifully now sitting in his more familiar roost on the back row as he and Dave shared a sly, knowing grin and nod. At that point, the ruse was explained. Dave had contrived this great idea to bring the reality of life's uncertainty and heaven's certainty to the hearts and minds of a class of impressionable skulls full of mush in a memorable but risky presentation. He had decided to take advantage of Weber's willingness to play the antagonist week in and week out and asked him to be part of the charade. Sean willingly agreed, since much of his Sunday antics was a result of attention getting anyway. Perhaps his motives would be realized and appreciated in a much more appropriate way. Thus, the plot was hatched to give the members of the high school Sunday school class of East 49th Street Christian Church the scare of their lives. Forgotten in the fateful moments of the shooting, were the earlier appearances of senior minister Russ Blowers, several church elders, including Ward's dad, Charles, all looking in the little door windows from the hall. They seldom ventured to that wing of the basement unless prompted to do so by well-meaning seniors who had voiced a concern for all that was going on down there, but they were surreptitiously present this day. We later discovered 
Dave had dutifully given leadership a heads-up of his plan. They apprehensively approved the scheme at an earlier meeting. Doubtfully unanimous. But today they looked on, wanting to see what Dave's fertile creative imagination for cultivating biblical truth had wrought. They witnessed it in full bloom. And even years later, when members of the old 49th Street Youth Group talk on Facebook or in person, we remember the images of that morning. The Sunday morning, Weber shot the youth minister. The event Dave McCord, in a personal interview half a century later, still called the dumbest thing he ever did in ministry. Nonetheless, it is worthy of recounting in the Primrose Chronicles. And with its retelling, floods of seemingly countless memories of a formative time come to mind. Hopefully it's reciting today does the same for the many of you listening. It's your host's great hope that others who were likewise impacted by special congregations filled with special people that the Lord brought together for a special time in God's special providence will recall and offer new thanks for the folks who invested in their earliest spiritual lives. Until then, when I'll have another tale from the Primrose Lane or Primrose Avenue, where life's a holiday, life's a family, life's one crazy story after another, blessings.